Hello and welcome to the Chasing Faith podcast. This is going to become a place for us to discuss issues of faith in a way that leads us towards a more authentic, open, honest, and generous expression of what we truly believe. I'm Brandon Batson. I'm the producer of this podcast and the Communications and Connections Director here at Christ Church in New York City. I'm here with your host, the Reverend Dr. Stephen Bauman, the Senior Minister here at Christ Church. Today, we welcome back to the podcast, Mark Hurst. Mark is the founder of Creative Good, the New York-based consultancy and creative platform he founded in 1997. He has spent his career writing, speaking, and advising teams about how to create better products and services. Welcome back to the podcast, Mark Hurst. Well, I am really pleased to be able to uh, have this next conversation with Mark Hurst. Listeners of this podcast might recall that that uh, on an earlier occasion, we chatted with Mark and he gave a rather robust and deeply sincere accounting of how he emerged into the world and how his spirit evolved and how it linked up to the work that he does. Um, that ultimately got us into a brief conversation about that work, but it was just a teaser. And today we want to come back and delve deeply, more deeply into that material that Mark is expert at. And some of the events of today actually are ripe for this conversation, very ripe. And so we're anxious to have this conversation with Mark, and I think you will find yourselves quite edified, stirred, and challenged by what we wind up talking about. So, Mark, maybe the best way to begin is for you to simply summarize the nature of your work, uh, just so the people are working off the same page. Sure. First of all, thanks for uh, having me back on the podcast. It's great to be back. As for my work, what I usually say is I'm an internet consultant. For a long time, I advised companies on how to make their digital products easier to use. But over the last several years, I've gotten involved in a um, volunteer radio show that I host every week where I interview thinkers and authors about technology and how it's affecting us. And I guess what I would say about my work these days is that I'm a radio host and a writer. <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking and writing every week about how digital technology, uh, especially as it's led by these big tech companies, um, is affecting every aspect of our lives today, and um, quite often not for the better. And among the things you write, you do uh, produce a weekly newsletter. And um, I'm thinking it might be helpful. We can we can repeat this at the end of our session as well, but why don't we say it right now? How can people find that newsletter, Mark? Just go to creativegood.com, and there's a sign-up link on the homepage. And, creativegood.com. Uh, creativegood.com, yep. Right. And the radio show is at tectonic.fm. That's T-E-C-H tonic.fm although that's also linked off of the creativegood.com homepage. Right. Well, we'll repeat that at the end as well, so our listeners have an opportunity to make sure they catch that. So, um, so you're a, an expert 
on well, let's see. How would you frame it? An expert on well, I've I've been involved in the web and web business since it started in the mid '90s. So um, I have a unique history in that I started my career just as the web was getting started. So I saw the the roots and the foundations of the platforms um, that we're now all subject to these days. In some cases, I met I met some of the now famous men <laughs> um, when they were not famous, when they were just starting out. And my own career arc has been such that for the, the first um, section of it, I don't know if it was the first half or something like that, I was I was a firm believer in the positive power of um, online technology and and the opportunities we had to actually improve um, different, I don't know, improve the world in different ways um, by promoting these platforms. And then over the last, I don't know, 10 or so years, I've, I've grown more and more disillusioned um, to the point now where I'm spending much of my time trying to raise the alarm about the extreme danger that these platforms pose to us and the overt criminality of the uh, behavior of the leadership. And it's a sad, I mean, it's a sad place to, uh, to come to after having felt so positive, maybe naively years ago. But I, I feel very, I feel um, somewhat duty bound to say something because I'm, I, I'm aware that I, again, I have a unique position and that I, I know a lot of things having just having been here for so long. And it's, it's, um, I feel some responsibility to get the word out to, to warn people. Could you in a sort of succinct way, state what you think the problem is? <laughs> and I realize there are permutations. And we're gonna, <laughs> Brandon's we're laughing. I want to ask a question of you, <laughs> Reverend. Can you tell me what the problem with the world is? Just I, I want you to do it in one sentence. <laughs> sure. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm yeah, kidding. You can interview me later so <laughs> <laughs> on that topic. Well, I, I actually... Yeah, how would you describe the issues for our listeners? Well, the problem, the, there's, there's a number of interlocking problems, um, but I have become convinced after, you know, over 100 interviews and reading dozens of books, I know more about technology now than I ever did <laughs> um, <laughs> at the height of my consulting career. Um, and I'm, I'm firmly convinced that the issues that we're seeing today revolve uh, around uh, power and money. And in that sense, the problems that we're facing from big tech are not unique to big tech. I mean, humanity has, has dealt with this before in different guises. Um, it comes in a particular flavor that's unique to um, digital technology. There are some new ways of that, that these services are being delivered. But it's a, it, the problem stems from a concentration of power that certainly in this country, we have never seen before in the history of this republic. We have never seen 
this concentration of extreme power unchecked, um, the, the, we have no leverage over that power, and we and we have no um, legal voice to change it. The, this is private power uh, that is concentrated in the hands of, I mean, under a dozen Americans, and their stated. Can we name those, Mark? Oh, sure. They're the, they're the CEOs of the big tech companies, which are the most powerful companies in history. So you have um, the CEO of Google is Sundar Pichai. Uh, he has two shadow bosses, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who um, intentionally stay out of the spotlight. But anyway, Sundar Pichai represents Google. Susan Wachiski um, is the CEO of YouTube, which of course is a subsidiary of Google, but an important company in its own right. Um, Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter. Tim Cook, CEO of Apple. And Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook. And then of course, um, depending on the day, usually the richest man in human history, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon. So who did I just list? Um, I think six or seven people just six, there. Six, yes. And together, they represent, um, I think that was five companies that uh, together have a market capitalization of um, well over a trillion dollars. And they're, they're making decisions that affect the economy and media and politics and society and commerce and entertainment and um, the effect on the environment and race relations and any aspect in American life that you care to list, um, they have supreme power. Um, and that, you, you know, as we've seen over the course of history, any kind of concentration of power tends to lead to bad outcomes. And that's, that's, that's the root of the evils we're seeing today. As far as you know, do you know if they're friends with one another? Uh, they communicate with each other. Well, Would they is, all agree with your assessment? I don't mean your moral assessment, but I meant, you know. Well, you just asked me three different questions. Are true. they are they friends? I don't know, and I don't, I don't really think that's relevant um, with all respect. Do they communicate with each other? Yes. Um, in fact, criminally so. There's a um, there's an antitrust lawsuit right now that uh, accuses very persuasively Facebook and Google of criminal collusion in their ad serving market. Just came out um, a few weeks ago, and so leadership could be criminally liable. That's we're talking prison terms. Um, and the third question was, would they agree with anything that I'm saying? That's an easy one, Steve. <laughs> they wouldn't agree with a single thing that I'm saying. <laughs> well, surely they would say they hold astonishing power. Well, I'm not even sure they would cop to that. I mean, in the, in the wake of the, um, the January, January 6th domestic terrorism incident, the the attempted armed overthrow of the American government, which maybe we can get into the roots of that, but yep. that was, yep. um, these companies all played a direct part in setting the stage um, for that coup attempt. And um, Jack Dorsey was just covered in the Wall Street Journal today um, 
writing online about what he thought Twitter's role was. And his, his basic um, response was, well, we need to look into whether um, platforms may have had some role somewhere vaguely. Um, I don't know. It was very uh, up in the clouds. Um, at the same time, Sheryl Sandberg has gotten press over the last couple of days saying, uh, declaring that um, the, the insurrection was not organized on Facebook. In other words, she's saying, don't look at me. We don't have very much power. We, we didn't cause this, which, which is, <laughs> it's so untrue, Steve, that both the Washington Post and the New York Times wrote stories debunking what Sheryl Sandberg said. Yes, CEO I saw of Facebook, okay. number two in Facebook, going public to lie. So, wh- I mean, what's clear to you and me and to, and to Brandon about the supreme power and the concentration of power within the hands of these individuals, no, I don't, I don't think they would admit to it. Well, I think that's the, that was one of the most convincing arguments that I've seen in a long time is the podcast uh, Rabbit Hole. Uh, sure. the New York Times did That's and just talked to, yeah mm-hmm. and just talked about the the insidious algorithm that that leads these people down the path of you know being um, radicalized for for one thing or the other right like you know what do you know about that process and how that's put together <laughs> well um, the the host of the uh, Rabbit Hole Podcast, Kevin Roos is an old acquaintance. I don't know, Steve, if you were there at that gel conference where... Um, the name is familiar. Kevin Kevin Roos spoke well before um, he was at the Times at, right. at my conference. And um, anyway, that's a, that's a whole other story. So I really, I respect his work and, uh, and that includes the, the work that he's done on talking about the radicalization that comes off of YouTube. Um, For my part, I have been writing about this exact problem for years, Um, in part drawing on the good journalism at the New York Times to um, to make my case. Um, Let me let me tell you a a brief story um, that I alluded to in our part one podcast, <laughs> call out to right. listeners yeah. who want to go go and re, uh, listen to that. But I, I just I just bookmarked it briefly in our first conversation, and, and this is the moment where I want to just tell the story in a little bit more detail. I, and I want to preface this by saying, Stephen Brandon, this that I'm going to tell you was a front page article in the New York Times. It's front page news, okay? So this has been happening in the open. And I think if I have my dates right, I think this came out about two years ago. I think it was spring of 2019, if I'm not mistaken. And the front page article in the New York Times on that whatever day that was uh, a couple years ago talked about the YouTube algorithm that presents people when you're watching YouTube on the right side of the page, you know, it says... Um, recommended videos or what to watch next. I forget what it's called, but you know how often when you f- when a video finishes, it'll start playing the next one. Well, the Times journalists started um, looking into how this recommended videos algorithm worked, and this is in fact exactly what Kevin Roos is talking about in Rabbit Hole. 
And this particular article focused on one specific outcome of this algorithm where it's recommending videos, which is that people who posted a video of their family at the beach, you know, like someone will just take a, here we are with the kids at the beach um, a few days ago last or uh, on a nice summer day. Those videos started racking up thousands of views. And what it turned out was happening is that the YouTube recommended videos algorithm was intentionally finding and curating these videos and then serving them up to users that the algorithm had identified as pedophiles. And so pedophiles were, were being served by YouTube a steady diet of home videos that included, you know, kids at the beach, kids in bathing suits and that sort of thing. And the journalists at the New York Times talked to the parents who had quite innocently posted their home video on YouTube and, and explained why their, their, their day at the beach video had gotten 15,000 views. And the parents, of course, were horrified that that's what was happening to the images of, 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 their, of their son, their daughter. And the reason why YouTube did this is because engagement, in this case, the amount of time people spend watching videos and the, and the amount of the number of videos that they can then be encouraged to watch again and, you know, the next video and the next video and the next video, that increases YouTube's profit because the more you watch, the more, the more advertising they can serve up. It's an, all an automatic process. And so YouTube's um, response was, and this came up later in a Senate hearing where they were at their public policy was asked, how much money do you, do you make serving up home videos to pedophiles? They wouldn't answer the question. And <clears throat> they have not made any public response to acknowledge their sin or to do anything to address it or to correct it. The best they can say is that, well, the algorithm works automatically and a lot of people post a lot of different stuff. So who knows where the money comes from? Who knows who's being engaged by what video? Which is an absolute lie. And I can, I can prove it. Try uploading a copyrighted uh, movie clip to YouTube. That algorithm will, will give you a cease and desist order in a few minutes. Try uploading explicit pornography to YouTube. Comes right down. They have massive server farms that can detect copyright infringements and um, pornographic infringement. And they have a, a vast team, I mean an army of tens of thousands of people who watch the videos that get uploaded and can flag things and take them down. But anything that is to the letter is legal and makes money for YouTube and allows them to, to achieve their growth at any cost strategy gets kept up. And that includes the worst the worst possible content. I just bring up these home videos as one example, but Brandon, you brought up what Kevin Roos talked about in the radicalization, um, racist, fascist, Nazi, far right, or some permutation of those um, video content is constantly served up by the YouTube algorithm because 
it draws people in, it gets it, it gets them engaged, and they can sell a lot of advertising against that engagement. So it's this, um, if you'll excuse the phrase, it's the it's this deep and abiding love of money that animates the decision making at YouTube to um, to grow the company at all costs and grow the profit base that results in these outcomes. And uh, that's how you end up with something like January 6th, among, among other outcomes that we could list. Well, say something about that. Just, uh, um, I was reading the articles this morning, actually, that you mentioned, and they, they were describing in some detail the Facebook uh, groups that uh, get served up. Okay. And it's all through the algorithm, correct? Yes. Here's here's the uh, Facebook groups thing. So here I've been <laughs> picking on YouTube, which, which very much deserves it, but they are hardly unique in big tech. Much of um, big tech profit making comes off of this growth at any cost um, model, which, by the way, the anti-racist organization Color of Change last summer uh, started a campaign called Stop Hate for Profit in which they were able to get hundreds of advertisers to pull their advertising from Facebook for one month um, because of its uh, the, the uh, racist outcomes from its algorithm, its group's recommendation algorithm. Here's how that worked. And this, by the way, was reported by that noted uh, leftist rag called the Wall Street Journal. This was a great, I don't know if this was actually front page, <laughs> but it might have been. This is a, a um, great, uh, great reporting uh, by the Wall Street Journal, I think about a year ago, in which they discovered that the Facebook group's recommendation algorithm, this is where when you sign up for a group, Facebook then presents you with other groups you might like to join. Well, it was doing the same thing that Google's recommended videos algorithm was doing. It tries to lure people into more and more extreme groups because, after all, that keeps them hooked and it increases their engagement, um, keeps them coming back to Facebook for, for more and more sensationalist content and, and uh, conspiracy theories and so on. And there are... Uh, or at least at the time of the Wall Street Journal article, there were countless uh, hate groups, white supremacist groups that were being um, happily hosted by Facebook, no problem, and eagerly served up to people who were looking for groups. So a Facebook user who showed the least propensity to white supremacist or uh, you know, racially tinged content, if we can say that as the mild version of it, the, the group's recommendation engine would, would um, suggest more and more radical racist hate groups for them to join. And the Wall Street Journal article uh, said, and I'm going to get the number wrong, but it was something like um, 60% of members of these racist hate groups had been recommended by the uh, group's algorithm to join another one. In other words, in a majority of the cases, it was the Facebook algorithm itself that was driving the recruitment of white supremacist groups. 
I believe also, we'll have to go back and check the article, but I believe that the journal uncovered internal documentation, internal communications within Facebook leadership in which, <laughs> this, is just, this is just mind-blowing, leaders inside Facebook knew that this was happening. They, they're very good at data analysis. They saw that, <laughs> that their platform was being used as a recruiting tool for white supremacist groups. And someone said, do you really think we should be doing this? Because obviously it's their algorithm. They could have shut it down. They have complete power over it. And word came from the top, don't change a thing. It's working as designed. Well, it's, it, it appeals to the outrage engine within all of us, right? Like, I think, I think like that what I see even in my own algorithm on Facebook is that it, it, this, this machine wants to enrage me. It only presents me with things that will further ensnare me into, you know, commenting back or posting another, you know, proof of my thoughts on a given topic or whatever. Like it, it's extremely scarily smart is, is what's just so obvious to me. Right, and the reason it knows exactly which buttons to push for you, Brandon, is because Facebook, um, derive, it, Facebook derives its knowledge of you through massive surveillance of you in, in ways that if you knew the extent, Brandon, of the surveillance that Facebook and its partners um, act, have activated on you and your personal life every waking moment, you would be horrified. It's a massive surveillance engine so that they can build what they call a digital double uh, in their servers. They, they, they have a, do a digital dossier on you, what you like, what you don't like, all automated, so that when the algorithm wants to serve something up for you, they make it as outrageous, exactly as you said, outrageous as possible so that you won't turn off Facebook. You'll say, how dare someone you know, do this? And you'll, you'll give an engagement. And uh, for you yourself, you might say, well, it outrages me, but maybe it, it doesn't ruin my life. Maybe you've, you derive some other benefit from Facebook. But on a population scale, on the, on the size of a country, the, the outcome of that profit model, Brandon, is that Facebook desires to burn down democracy. Um, they desire to foment insurrection because as long as the citizens are trying to murder each other, they have to go through Facebook in order to maintain their connections and to maintain their level of outrage and for a scarily high percentage of Americans to, to even get their news at all, they go to Facebook. So this, this platform, you know, January 6th was just one eruption, one completely logical outcome of the Facebook business model that is just one of countless numbers of harmful, I mean, explicitly harmful outcomes of the platform that, that they monetize every day. It's, it's just, it's an unconscionably awful service. Mark, say a word a bit more granular about the surveillance network, because it's not uh, on Facebook. They're not deriving just what you say on Facebook, correct? That's right. They watch 
uh, every as much as they can, these services watch everywhere you go. It used to be, you know, years ago, um, it used to be that Facebook and Google um, would watch what you did on their services. Every click, every uh, every scrolling up and down, how you lo- how how much time you spent on each page, that sort right. of thing. Right. And you can sort of understand why a site in the early days might have wanted to do that to see what what parts of their site were more popular than others. But then what Google and Twitter and Facebook found is that there's money in them hills if we can surveil people the more we more surveillance is more profit and so you remember that time this is I, I don't know it was around 10 years ago when the like buttons popped up on every single web page please like this like this like this and everyone thought oh that's just a way for facebook to find out what pages you like <laughs> baloney it was a way for facebook to put a little bit of surveillance code on every page on the web so that they could track you, what you did and what you looked at and how long you spent and what you interacted with everywhere you went online. You didn't just have to be on Facebook. Everywhere else you went, Facebook was watching you. And then after that, Facebook said and Google said, how come we're only watching them when they're on web pages? Why can't we watch them in every other part of their lives too? And so now that we care, we all carry these little pocket surveillance devices. Some people call them iPhones and Android devices, but they're really just surveillance devices that are mainly designed for the benefit of these companies. You get to make phone calls and chat with people, but they're mainly surveillance devices. Now the companies get to watch you everywhere you go in the real world. You don't even have to be on a website at all. They're watching where you go and they ha- you know they're watching the gps so they know when you go to the doctor's office they know if you go to church they know uh who you're getting together with because your friends who you're getting together with even if it's properly socially distanced in the park they know that there's a cluster of these phones together and each one of your friends has a surveillance dossier in the servers of these companies so uh, th- there's a whole book on this uh, called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by right. Shoshana Zuboff, where mm-hmm. she talks about the, the uh, extremely, I, I don't, it's, it's hard to grasp the right words, the, the, uh, beyond offensive thinking behind this uh, kind of business model is that these big tech companies are no longer satisfied watching you when you, want, when you use their services, that's not enough. They need to surveil you and monetize every aspect of your private life. So what used to be a safe haven when you wanted to go for a walk in the park, that was your alone time. It's no longer alone time if you are carrying a surveillance device. These companies are, are watching and tracking you every step. And that does something to a population, Steve, when people no longer have any solitude in, in, their, in their lives, it begins to uh, slowly drive them crazy. And um, so that, 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 that's the extent. And there, there's been a lot of reporting in the last year or two um, how these companies are partnering with data brokers, which are really shady uh, operators who 
um, you know, through the right data broker, I can now um, pay a few dollars and get a uh, get the the last 24, 48 hours of your location, Steve. I can see exactly where you've been for a small fee. So the the surveillance that these big tech companies are are um, execu- executing on your private life is no longer kept just within their own toxic servers. They're happy to package it up and make it available to third parties as well. And this, in some ways, describes the large conversation that's been erupting around, quote, privacy, what we consider privacy and who owns my data, right? Well, first, why does every second of my life have to be turned into data in in the first place? I agree. I yeah. mean, I think that's where to start. There are some um, more libertarian free market type folks out there who say, I have the answer. Um, now that we're completely surveilled to every inch of our lives, we're going to we're gonna create a market so you can sell your data and get, right. you know, a dividend of $5 a month. I mean, what, what a load. Give me a break. <laughs> what we should be asking is why are we building a society where people – we're kids, Steve, kids. Well, everyone who carries one of these things is intrusively surveilled, and that is, that's just wrong. We don't need a market for the data. We need to tear down the surveillance state. Is that possible? Okay, well, that's a whole other question. So now you've launched us into a new there. phase. I think we should go there. <laughs> <laughs> We've named the problem, sort of. What do we do about it? Is it is it really is is surveillance is a surveillance environment the future period? Oh. I mean, there may be ways of demonetizing it and breaking up some of the big players, but at the same time, are we? Don't you think, Mark? People uh, like the idea of being so intimately connected everywhere through everything. Isn't there a part, isn't there a human dynamic part of this as well? I mean, that's not me, but I'm just saying that I kind of sense that in people to some degree, you know? You know, if you go into a, um, well, pre-pandemic anyway, if you went into a fast food restaurant and you looked around at the people who were gorging themselves on French fries. Right. You could ask your um, your nutritionist friend. Well, people just like French fries. You know, they're proving it through their behavior. So I guess we should make more French fries. And that's kind of a flippant response. But my my point is that people have gotten so accustomed to the toxicity that surrounds them that in the moment, if you ask them, I think they'd probably say, "Yeah, I." I kind of I I do like being able to see funny cat videos anytime I want. I do like being able to chat with people with you know with uh, various messaging apps. I'd but like to know where Brandon is. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, when you hear about people who go off the grid or or do a digital detox or start assuming better habits invariably you hear that after a couple of tough hours or tough days some some period of um you know these some difficult period where they're trying to get off of the devices 
when they when they get to the other side, they say they say how much better it is not to be constantly distracted and surveilled on by these devices. My gosh, what a what a what a toxic environment we live in. Um, so as for your question, what do we do about it? Uh, I think we can address this on two different angles, and depending on someone's political persuasion, they generally lean heavily on one or the other. Um, so I'm going to give you two options, and I like both of them because I'm not, I'm not really a political partisan. One, um, one angle which uh, conservatives and libertarians tend to like is personal responsibility. And I think there's a lot to be said for that in terms of our making better choices about the tools that we use. Uh, so, for example, Brandon, if there is not an overriding essential reason for you to be on Facebook, I'd invite you to delete your Facebook account, delete your Instagram account, and make sure never to use WhatsApp. Just stop using everything that Mark Zuckerberg touches. Just stop. And your life will improve. It may be a little less convenient, but I promise you your life will improve if you delete your accounts. Um, on an organization level, uh, not personal responsibility, but organizational responsibility, organizations like, let's say, a church can make a corporate decision to get off of these services wherever it's possible. We're no longer, for example, we're no longer going to have a Facebook presence. We're no longer going to use Gmail for our uh, for our staff emails or, or what have you. Um, this is a very difficult conversation. I've even brought it up at the radio station where I'm at, and it's 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 not an it's not easy. None of this is easy. But that's one angle where where individuals and groups of individuals can choose on their own steam to. Um, to avoid and break up with the big tech giants because there are alternatives out there. The other, the other uh, set of solutions or, or opportunities for us that people from um, a, the, the liberal side tend to favor is uh, governmental uh, action. And I'm also in favor of this. Um, and this is top-down authority saying to the big tech companies, you must change your business models. You, you must change your behavior. Um, so this can take the form of um, dramatic and strict fines uh, on their past illegal behavior. Uh, that's been tried to some extent. And I mean, the big tech companies have the highest paid lawyers in the world, so they tend to be able to to uh, we weasel out of those. Another way is strict antitrust action in which um, these companies are broken up into component parts that then have to compete against each other. I'm, I'm totally in favor of that. And um, Rhode Island Representative David Cicilline is doing some great work in the House on that. And then um, finally, I think the the most effective stick that, that we can present that um, people have begun to talk about is criminal liability for leadership. And here I'll point you to a recent New Yorker article um, uh, by Charles Duhigg talking about the, the culture and behavior within Silicon Valley in which 
uh, Stanford professor Steve Blank. This is a Stanford professor who's who's in the Silicon Valley ecosystem, who said more or less, we're going to see some changes in Silicon Valley as soon as we see the first perp walk. By which he means, let's get one of the big tech leaders, put him in handcuffs, and parade him in front of the cameras on his way to his prison cell for his criminal behavior, and that will wake up the billionaires finally that they need to start behaving better. Um, I'm in favor of that as well. So, I, 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 as a you know, as I look at the world, I, I think we can we need to do what we can. Not not everyone has the ability or the privilege of getting off of some of the services, but for those of us who have some flexibility, I think we have a responsibility to try to get off of the big tech services. And past that, we need to be very supportive of lawmakers who are doing the right thing and trying to um, break up the concentration of power in Silicon Valley. Mark, do you, uh, in your experience, are you feeling like uh, a voice in the wind? Is there a growing chorus? Are you uh, seeing a growing groundswell of this? I, what I would report is that there are a lot more articles going, you know, in the major publications around this matter, even, even this past week, as we've already identified. But I'm kind of curious how you're reading the tea leaves on this. It the, the criticism of big tech has increased dramatically in the last several years, and that's been nice to see. I'm certainly not the only person. You know, I'm not the lone profit left or some you know crazy <laughs> thing like that. There, right. Um, in fact, I'd say if anything, I was a little bit late to the party. There have been good trenchant criticisms of this um, for years. And so I'm, I'm, I'm one of many people out there who are saying this. I'm just trying to use my little platform to do my little part. Um, but if you step back and really look outside of the internet, but look more at the criticism of technology as our entire society has, has um, come under the sway of technological forces. The criticism goes back a hundred years. Um, there, there, um, there was um, almost a hundred years ago, Lewis Mumford, who was um, for a long time, he was the architecture critic for the New Yorker, but he also wrote books on um, technological criticism. And I mean, this, he's in the, I think it was in the late 30s or early 40s already, he was saying um, there's, the power is building in, in the, in the um, corridors of these technology firms. And he was right. And he made predictions about where this would all lead that have come true. I'm and there there have been many. I mean, Louis Mumford is one. I could talk about Jacques Ellul, who was um, right. a French uh, anarchist Catholic, who right. also wrote books on theology. So, what when you look at that long heritage of technology critics, <laughs> here's 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 the punchline of all of this, Steve. You consider the the deep and thoughtful work and writing that 
that generations of technology critics have published. And here we are. <laughs> and you wonder, is it, is it in the end just shouting into the wind? I mean, is it inevitable that, that these, uh, these faceless forces of technology are going to continue to um, continue well, this, their, I don't know. Yeah, that that is behind what I was asking earlier about don't people actually want what technology is delivering and they're willing to, for whatever payoff they think they're getting, they're willing to sell their soul in the meantime. Um, I remember when, remember when Google Glass was coming out and boy, everyone thought they were, that was the neatest thing since sliced bread. And, uh, you know, but, but, in, but the big critique, at least it wasn't a real noisy critique, but the big critique had to do with surveillance and so on and what Google was amassing in terms of information. And Yeah, well, I know something about that. They were salivating over this. Um, in fact, I've, you know, not to blow my horn on this too much, but I was one of the oh, first... Okay. <laughs> I was one of the first people to publish a criticism of Google Glass. Yeah, I remember that, actually. And... It was probably that column I wrote. I think it was called the 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 Google Glass feature that Google doesn't want you to know about. It was something like that. I think it remains today still the most popular thing I've ever written. And it absolutely went viral. It was. It, I mean, I, I I have experienced that once. Something that went viral. I mean, it was getting referenced by journalists and I don't know, it passed around like tens of thousands of times. And what that told me was that while at first glance, people were excited about Google Glass because it was shiny and new and all the things a new gadget is supposed to do, when people were made aware of what it was actually doing, they were horrified and immediately they turned against it. And you might remember bars started putting up signs saying no glass holes allowed <clears throat> mm -hmm. um, because they didn't want the surveillance of their bar patrons. Right. And so I, I think that when you, when you ask, and I, I think it's a legitimate question, don't people want this? The answer is yes and no. I mean, yes, by their actions, they want it because they continue to choose these horrible services for whatever reason. But no, they don't actually want it if they're properly educated as to how this works. And so it's a, it's a challenge for those of us who, who know how this works and feel responsibility to do something about it, that we have to work to raise awareness. That's where this all starts. And that's why, you know, podcasts like yours is so important to raise awareness about what's happening in the world. And then people can make their own decisions, what they want to do. Um, but I'm confident, Steve, if, if more of us would stand up and talk about what's actually happening and tell the truth about what's happening in technology, more and more people would say, I'm fed up. I'm not using that anymore. What's intriguing to me a bit is that the moral conundrum has not been discussed within the religious community, uh, broadly speaking. I'm not saying there aren't here and there some, 
some people chatting, but as a general condition, the the, the uh, religious community is not discussing the moral peril here. And, you know, so many of the churches are entirely focused on their Facebook presence. If they were to get off Facebook, they would no longer exist. And a lot of them have, I mean, I've talked, and I know this, we have not done that at Christ Church, um, but I know many who do it. And of course, the more likes and hits you get, uh, the uh, juicier it seems. And, um, and it feels as though you are accomplishing good things by by your presence there. And after all, what's the alternative? Where else am I going to be building church? How am I going to be building church, particularly in this day and age of virtual universe? What is the virtual universe without Facebook, Twitter, um, and Google? You know, I'm, I'm, it's a rhetorical question, but I'm sort of asking it. I'm also sort of asking it, in fact, what is the virtual universe without these? Um, how do we become known? How do we attract, you know, if, if it's the engine of our community life? See, I want the church to be, I, I want, I'd like the broader community to be grappling with some of these questions because they're not it's it's just it's you know that's silence there right well let me just state that i i i don't think that an online presence or online tools by their very nature are evil or shouldn't be used i mean having said all of this about the big tech giants there still is opportunity to connect people and to communicate in new ways with online technology it just happens not to be through the the dominant players. So if a church wanted to continue to have an online presence, they could do that. If they wanted to host videos, they could do that. If they wanted to have a way for members to communicate, they could do that. All these things are possible. It just means stepping away, actively stepping away from the giants that are um, com they are diametrically opposed to the goals of of any authentic faith community, Steve. They they are these companies are a desecration, and I th I think that just full stop. You know, <laughs> any faith community gaining the awareness that it sh should by all rights, gain about the history and the current behavior of these platforms. As soon as they understand the realities of these platforms, they cannot, with any integrity, remain on those platforms. And it takes a little extra work and it's a hassle to get onto other, you know, more independent platforms or just, and they don't even have to be, you know, uh, faith-oriented platforms, just anything but these big tech platforms. Yes, but I'm going to interject to say that a lot of these religious organizations are dependent upon the same algorithms that you decry. Okay. That's, because that's how they function. They're, that is their model. It's a capitalist model, actually. Okay. Well, 
in one of our previous conversations, Steve, uh, a while back, you said something to me that, that I've, I thought was very appropriate and it's, it's stuck in mind since, which is you, you said something like, Mark, the activism that you're doing now sounds a little bit like abolition. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what a good analogy. Um, because if we go back, you know, 170 years, yeah. the dominant economic system of this country was completely untenable for anybody who had an authentic faith. We, we know that now. But I can imagine at the time, depending on what state someone lived in and what um, social network such as it was that they were a part of, they could look around and say, well, believe you me, I'm no fan of slavery. But, you know, this just how these things work around here. Um, maybe someone else will take care of it. But right well, now... It was worse than that, Mark. It the the religion embraced slavery and endorsed it and promoted it exactly and it's exactly what you're saying about other faith communities that as you say are embracing these algorithms they're leaning into it to use a toxic phrase um (laughs) and they should be going in the exact opposite direction of expending energy to extract themselves um, can you imagine, Steve, that a faith community might have to buck a, a cultural trend <laughs> or cultural expectations or do something that's difficult? I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. Well, like I said, I don't think um, I don't think this conversation has actually migrated into the moral universe yet. It's uh, it's a tech argument it's a technological argument or a political argument to some but it hasn't it hasn't migrated into a robust moral conversation is what i would say that makes sense brandon i'm kind of curious where you're what are you thinking how are you responding to this yeah i mean i yeah me and you have had conversations even about like the you know the history of the church you know, after COVID or the future of the church after right. COVID. Right. Um, you know, I feel like during this time, you know, just to be transparent, hundred percent, it's like, I feel like we've been driven more towards these, these companies in this time and every other church that I know more so than any other time before, because, you know, either a church didn't have much of an online presence or, you know, their, their online you know, presence was, you know, just like kind of tacit, you know, like we, we signed up for an account and it's linked to our, you know, email that we send out once a week. And, you, you know, I mean, they're just not thinking about it at all. You're right. Like it hasn't reached any point where it's actually being discussed by anyone. It's just something that everyone's doing because it's it's a cultural expectation of their people. Their people are all on Facebook. They're all on Instagram. So we should be on Facebook. We should be on Instagram. Um, and Twitter and everything else. And I think like the problem, the problem for churches like ours is that it has become the way that we've started communicating with a lot of people. And I think, and, and even, 
even in some of our engagement, you know, on the connections ends of things that I've been over for the last year and a half, it's the way a lot of people have found us. And so I think like the question becomes is how, you know, if we are going to do the hard work of moving off of these platforms, we have to come up with something that will work for us as well, as far as an organization, you know, trying to find people who, who need us, who need our services, who need the things that we do. You know, I don't know. I'm, it is a very confusing thing, but at the same time, I hear everything Mark's saying, and it's extremely troubling, you know, and, and to know that we have a part to play in it and that we do have to keep having the conversation about what are the moral implications of it. I mean, I think that's all good. And I think it's something that we have to engage in. Yeah. I, I we're not, this conversation isn't leading to a, a series of decisions, particularly what I do think is that this conversation is leading to a series of conversations <laughs> and an ever deepening series of conversations among a wider and wider uh, circle of people. Um, I'd like to have this conversation, for instance, among, <clears throat> you know, I'm chair of the Partnership of Faith in New York City, which is some religious, Abrahamic faith, religious traditions. I'd love to bring this up. A couple of those, there's a couple of organizations that have massive, uh, I suspect, Facebook audiences. Um, but I also know of quite a lot of churches who see their future as Facebook. That is how they are going to survive. And, it, 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 you know, as the, to your, to your uh, reference of post-COVID church, which none of us knows what that's going to be like, we do know that virtual church in some form or fashion is here to stay. Um, but the truth is we don't do much with Facebook. We don't, that's not our primary way of communicating. Um, but all of these matters that Mark is bringing to the fore are ripe for our conversation and important for our conversation, uh, particularly at this time, and particularly given the state of our national uh, culture. Uh, we, we've had that writ large right now. Uh, and we know what some of the destructive outcomes are. We need to become smart, it seems to me, about what what are the political uh, routes ahead. Uh, how can we be supportive of breaking apart big tech, uh, re rethinking how it's structured and formed and how it delivers and how it provides its service. You know, I remember the antitrust case as well around uh, the telephone company. And um, <clears throat> that was that was really a an argument around um, power and control, and who got to who got to be the deliverer of this useful service, which is more like a public utility rather than a private profit making thing. And there's a lot of that in the background. Is there not, Mark, in this conversation? Like, what is the where do these rights begin and end? We've just sort of people just sort of assume they're there and they take them and use them. But, but it's a it's a public access to some degree, right? Yes, I mean the well, you just said a lot right there. But yeah, I know. Me, I understand. <laughs> in a in a sort of last and first out, let me um, address your your most recent good point. 
which is the the role of the corporation in public life now being taken as a granted um, as as just a right. a fact of life and there's been a lot of writing on this you've you're exactly right about it um, a lot of people have noted that the 1970s were the time when deregulation really stepped up and um, what people call the neoliberal uh, paradigm took hold within the U.S. And that's only accelerated over the years to the point that you see the privatization of all sorts of things in American life that in, in other more sane societies might have been provided um, by the state, not in a profit-making capacity. This gets into politics, you know, yes. right versus left. Yes. But when we think about things like a Facebook, a national social network as a public good, or even Google search en- search index as a public good, people, um, th- there's a framework for thinking about how we could have something that's so tightly regulated that it b- basically becomes nationalized, w- which has its own pros and cons. But the the moment we're in right now with um, extreme corporate concentration, not just in big tech, and the decline of institutions outside of corporate power yes. seems, some people say, and I I would agree with this, that it seems to be the logical conclusion of neoliberalism where everything outside of the corporate consolidation begins to break down. And so I, although I'm not a partisan, we, we need to address corporate concentration of power, um, starting with big tech, but not limited to that. I agree. Um, That's part of the moral conversation. It is. And that was the other thing that I wanted to just acknowledge that I, I think you're right that th- this is... <laughs> This conversation or the next one is not the time to start making spot decisions. I think the important thing that you're raising is the existence of a moral dimension in in this conversation that really has not been touched. That is correct. And I think to whatever extent you and your um, various leadership positions can open this as a as an area of thought and inquiry, I think that would be really helpful for people to understand it's not just a technology problem. In fact, it's it's barely a technology problem at all. It's it's mostly <laughs> about the moral dimensions of That's right. power and how it's exercised. Right. right, right. Well, you know, I'm checking my watch and I'm realizing we're probably at our timeline. Really? Oh, Steve, I was just getting started. I have another I two hours here ready. <laughs> well, God knows there's a part three, Mark. Great. <laughs> but this was, I think this was pretty stimulating. I think you're going to be uh, opening some new, fresh pathways for a lot of people who will tune into this. I hope they do. Let's reiterate where they can find you again. It's your website is creativegood.com, and you can find uh, Mark's weekly uh, newsletter there. And the radio program, say it again. It's called Tectonic, kind of like tectonic plates, but it's T-E-C-H-tonic.fm. Right. Um, Mark has some excellent uh, guests on that program. 
many of whom are sort of on the cutting edge of this conversation and have been doing a massive amount of research to back up uh, what they are discovering to be real. Um, so, Mark, again, thanks for joining the conversation. Great, as always, to have this chat with you. And I encourage our listeners to listen to the first interview we had with Mark so you can get a better handle on the complete person. Um, but thanks a lot. Thanks so much for having me, Steve and Brandon. It's, it's always a pleasure.